Hello and welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. My name is Declan Mead. I'm the publisher here at the Stinging Fly. Joining me today from her home in Galway is novelist, short story writer, poet, essayist and editor, Neil O'Connor, who is also published under the name Nulandi Kruhur. Nula has been publishing work in The Stinging Fly for almost 20 years. Her first time in the magazine was with a short story in 2002, and most recently she had an essay blowing in and blowing out in her Galway 2020 edition. Nula earlier this year published her fifth novel, Nora, about the life of Nora Barnacle. She is also editor of the Flash e-zine Splunk. Uh, Nula, you are very welcome. Thanks a million, Declan. Um, so you've chosen today to read from Nicole Flattery's essay, Dance, Sing, Earn Your Keep, which we published in the magazine in 2015. So will we just start with that reading? Okay, so this is, uh, I've extracted bits from the essay and this is it. The first thing I did when I arrived in New York was get a job. The second thing I did was get fired. It was the longest firing anyone has ever experienced. My boss couldn't find a replacement, so I kept having to go into the office and pretend it hadn't happened. This charade was wearing for both me and her, and she often, without explanation, would leave in the early afternoon, or usually not come in at all. The office was located in Koreatown, which, if you have a short attention span and are in any way easily seduced, is where you want to be. The day I got fired, I went to the local salad place and puzzled over what had gone so horribly wrong. One minute my boss and I were happily discussing which of her clients was an alcoholic, the next minute I was jobless. It was something involving a stamp. She said watching me move around the office was upsetting and I said I understood. Still, it hurt. I had been uninterested in things in the past or I had been forgetful but I'd never actually failed at something. The salad place was dark and resembled a nightclub. Every place in New York must be two places at once or else it is just a disappointment. So it was good for moments of introspection. I sat pushing a tomato bleakly around with a plastic fork while listening to terrible thumping techno and wondering why I was there. Despair, the crushing of all my hopes, anxiety. It was the sincere American experience. The Korean beauty shop sold a series of face masks that were made to resemble animal faces. In a moment of desperation, I bought a panda one to cheer myself up. I bought the lot, actually. Lion, zebra, cat. I thought it would be impossible to see something so novel in the mirror and still be upset and frightened. But no, I can clarify it is entirely possible. After I did all the face masks, I was still fired. I suppose I should have confirmed what the job was early on because I was never totally sure. Ostensibly, I was an assistant to a literary agent, but the position was a lively mix of fact and fiction. The fact was I had a job, I had somewhere to go during the day. The fiction was anything that happened once I got inside the door. It reminded me of an improvisational exercise, one where a quirky shoeless teacher would hand out three props and gesture around the room expectantly. Here's a computer, a printer, and the fridge is down the hall. Now, make it up. We shared a floor with another company, but I had no colleagues. There were people I apologised to if I used the microwave for too long, but that was about the height of all of my interactions. A man from one of the mysterious other floors once asked for my business card, and it seemed ridiculous to me, like many scenes had happened in my life, and I had somehow missed them all. And yet, 
this was my dream job, if those two words are allowed to appear together in the same sentence, except that it wasn't. My boss rarely came in, and I spent my mornings sending her emails to which she did not respond. The rest of the day was spent lying to her clients about her presence in the office. I learned many new and interesting ways to lie, which became useful later on when I told everyone I had quit. The worst part of all this was that in the beginning I believed I could do it. I got dressed, I put on makeup, and embarrassingly I persevered. When my boss actually appeared in the office, I alternated between feeling deeply ashamed for no reason I could identify and trying to discern her mood. If she was being restrained, she would just look at me in a way that said, if I had hired a person to be incompetent, I couldn't have found anyone better. If she was in a warm and affectionate mood, she would catalogue my mistakes, circle errant commas, let me know by whatever means possible that she thought I was sluggish, slow, an utter moron. It was inconceivable that I might do anything right. It was a waste of time to finish a manuscript, irresponsible not to finish it, as anything we agreed upon could change instantaneously. The situation was unfortunate. I was an idiot, but I contained all the secrets of the universe. That her office also had a computer was a mere coincidence, an aberration, as she did not know how to use it. On the days she arrived in, I could hear her behind me assaulting the keyboard, demanding with every violent tap that it was the mid-90s once again. If I was afraid of her, she was equally scared of slight technological breakdowns, anything that might unmoor us from the rest of the book world. When the printer broke, I was too spineless to say the words, the printer's broken. Instead, I made surreptitious pilgrimages to the other side of the office. Occasionally, she would just sidle up to me and administer bizarrely instructive gifts, vouchers for blow dries, a copy of Primates of Park Avenue, the book made famous for its mention of the wife bonus. I read it standing up on the subway, terrified she was going to quiz me on the ins and outs of the cash rewards gifted to the wives of the extraordinarily wealthy. And I finally understood the meaning of the word alien. I was on a different planet. Out the office window, I could see a children's playground on the roof opposite. Every afternoon, the children would come out and run around rambunctiously, probably frustrated by the lack of items to knock over. I thought, what a small patch of land to learn how to be a child, poor things. In truth, those insightful big city children were probably staring back up at me as I ran around in more convoluted, administrative-based circles, thinking, what a small patch of land to learn how to be an adult. I emigrated because I wanted to look like I was doing something. I could avoid serious conversations just by looking sadly into the distance and whispering mournfully about opportunities. I had a number of stock phrases I threw out. A favourite was, there's no room for growth in my field in Ireland, because it implied I had a field of interest, and that in some unspecified way I wanted to grow. I also liked the word career. I liked to use it. It called to mind a woman who had mastered the art of steady eye contact. In New York, there are thousands of sophisticated, well-dressed women whose appearance is achieved through a sheer concentration of will. When I first met my boss, I was impressed by her unnaturally white, wrinkle-free outfit. It suggested she lived in a glass cage or that no sane thinking person would ever dream of touching her. 
I realised the effort and labour involved in her life when she took two bites of a cookie and threw it in the bin, when she took exercise classes that cumulatively cost more than my salary. One of her clients wrote the book that inspired the television show about four women living stylishly, unbelievably, in Manhattan. It appeared on the shelves in the office, covers depicting cartoons of skeletal-looking women holding champagne flutes as if their lives, the very fact of their existence, was something to celebrate. In many ways, my childhood prepared me for the life I was going to have. Nothing sets you up for a future of sporadic employment like growing up in a small town where you are taught from birth how to stretch the most simple and basic tasks to last hours. And that book, despite its hysteria, its true life stories that sounded nothing at all like true life, did contain maybe one truth. Women are not allowed to fuck up. Or more importantly, they're not allowed to be seen to fuck up. I made the decision to go to New York because I was lost in Dublin. I was directionless, as they like to say now. I did not know what I wanted to be and I just skipped from one place to another, cheerfully eliminating things as they came along. Farewell, I would say, as I waved goodbye to all my viable job options, making a big show of leaving them like they were children at a creche. And off I went without even the slightest intention of picking them up again. I wanted to work in publishing or I wanted to work with books, and it was looking increasingly unfeasible. Leaving was a risk, and like all risks I have ever taken, I was hyper-aware of it. Before I left, strangers kept reassuring me that I would have a delightful time over there, that the people would love me. What they would love was vague. My maddening inability to get to the end of a sentence without getting distracted. At the airport, I gave my family an artful, carefully chosen card that said something along the lines of, thank you for having me. Writing about the sacrifices entailed in putting a life together, George Saunders wonders what our jobs cost us in terms of personal grace. I've thought about it in regards to my own situation and the answer is a lot. In one particular instance, my boss made me write an email about myself that ended with the words, I apologise for my assistant, she's new, and doesn't know what she's doing. Typing those words, colluding in this divorce from myself was confusing, but oddly cheering. I maintained a jolly distance from myself throughout the whole thing. There were days, whole weeks, when I was barely there at all. I've been an intern in the past, and I know that the point of an intern is to be invisible, to be there while not being there at all. But this was the first job I had where visibility was a requirement. It was the only requirement. I was a symbol, confirmation to herself that she mattered, that she was still too thrillingly important to answer her own emails. I was the girl who stood at the front of the shop, although in this case the shop was on fire, and said hi. If you ignored my untidiness, my sleepless face, I was just about the best window dressing you could find. When I was growing up, my mother worked in an office. When I saw her at the end of the day, I would follow her down to her bedroom to tell a rambling story that went nowhere, and she would take off her jewellery, her lipstick, and become normal, vulnerable. If she was tired, if she found the long commute boring or lonely, if there were a hundred other things she would have preferred to have done with her hours, her days, I don't know. She never said. She made it all sound so interesting, so effortless and funny. 
It was how she told it, how easily she could laugh at this place that sounded vast and terrifying, how she could laugh at herself. So I tried to do the same. I told anecdotes about my job like it was endlessly comic, like it was a sort of work theme park. In truth, it was the worst I have felt about myself in my admittedly short life. And that's what actually kept me going. I reminded myself that there was probably more terrible debasement to come, experiences that would make this job seem like a series of lighthearted days out. These thoughts were not as comforting as I expected them to be. In New York, every single literary agent's assistant is a young female. That's not a surprise. We have superb phone voices. There was a network of them, a web of worried, nervous women I spoke to via email. I never met any of them. They all had the same concerns as me, a slight frenetic edge to their correspondence. We organised lunch dates for our bosses, endless chains of conversations with minor time differences. We talked about events or rights or obscure figures, and occasionally we read something, and maybe that made everything worthwhile, or maybe it didn't. I imagined they were like me, good students who had done all the right things and now waited, dusting lint off their pencil skirts, trying to look prepared for their rewards. I could see their outfits, tidy, inexpensive, impeccable costumes. I had a friend who worked in a publishing house who told me about the office intern who took selfies in the bathroom mirror and hashtagged them hilariously. Hashtag work, hashtag publishing. I laughed at this woman and her desperate need to be present, to participate, as I ghosted in and out of my own life. And where did these women go? I had an interview with a literary agent who told me what he required most from an assistant was a nice presence. Plants also have a nice presence, why not be a plant? It made me curious as to what would happen when we lost our nice presence. Maybe, like when we misbehaved in school, they would just turn us to face the wall. Maybe they would deprive us of light and water. When I was in college, my mother lost her job. The word lost is apt here. That is what happened. It was outsourced somewhere cheaper, put in a place she couldn't find. I like to think that as you get older, every loss affects you less and less, but it's probably not the case. My mother's time slowed. It must have slowed to an incredible pace, about which I had no idea. Because for me, things accelerated. I finished college, I graduated, I graduated again. I dithered, I did paperwork, I went to New York. I wound up on a bad Skype line to her, her voice far away but full of mercy and kindness. Both of us so grateful that we didn't have to look at each other as we tried to talk graciously about failure. Thanks very much, Nula. Um, so even while you were reading that, I was trying not to laugh, but... Um Tell me why you chose this piece. This is one of those pieces that has just stuck with me completely. I mean, I don't think a lot of people write about work, uh, but Nicole does. She writes about it in her fiction and in this piece, and she does it so brilliantly. I love essays anyway, you know, the way you kind of, you can poke at yourself and see what you find and maybe get answers to things that puzzle you about yourself or occupy your thoughts. You know, those things in your personality that you worry about or that you worry over maybe, you know, they're great for trying to solve the conundrum of yourself. So yeah. I think Nicole does that so beautifully here. Um, she, 
she, there's just, I love as well the, the sort of the clarity in the sentence, the balance and the harmony in them. Yeah. Like that opening bit of the first thing, the second thing, the fact was I had no job. The fiction was anything that happened inside the door is just so yeah. beautifully done. Um, and another great juxtaposition that's similar to that, but it's very insightful as well, is the small patch of land. Absolutely. That she's looking at the children and then she imagines them. It's so insightful looking back at her saying, well, what a small patch of land to learn how to be an adult. Yeah. And that that idea of learning how to be an adult is obviously key to this particular situation. And I suppose um, you've written yourself in terms of um, your own experience kind of moving to Galway and uh, finding work uh, within the arts. And I I mean, I suppose I was struck by how vulnerable that a person can be, and particularly perhaps a young woman trying to find, you know, a place in that world. Um, Yeah, because I think when you're about 18, you think 25 is old, right? Yeah. And you think, oh, I'll have it all figured out by then. And then you get to 25 and you maybe have got your degree or a few years of work experience and you're still bewildered and you're thinking, okay, when's my real life actually going to begin? I do remember a sort of a a push in myself at the age of 25. And Nicole was 25, I think, when this was set. Yeah. Um, and, And thinking... Oh God, I have to do something. And so I moved from Dublin to Galway at 26, actually, um, to start the life that I was meant to have. This was the idea in my head. And of course, then (laughs) you're still as confused and bewildered as ever and life takes over. But I think what she does beautifully here is, and and she does this in a lot of her work, and it's one of the things I love about her, is her self-deprecating humour, you know. Yes, yeah. I was reading an interview with her, I think it was in Books Ireland, and she says in it that a friend suggested to her to write a happy story for a change. Yeah. I do wonder if that friend was a writer. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I can't see that they were, but she says she couldn't see the point because it just seems so manufactured, like like writing a pop song, she said. Yeah. Um, and that happiness is never funny. And she loves the space that the darkness creates for something like this, you know. So she's great at capturing the undercurrent of despair, of melancholy. There's there's lost ambition in this. And yet we, well, I certainly as a 51-year-old, feel nothing but sympathy and empathy for this young woman. Her loss of ambition almost, her loneliness, because I remember these things so well from, I worked abroad a few times. Yeah. Devastatingly homesick. Um, I have to say when I moved to Galway, I never looked back, but... Um, it's different when you go to New York, you're the other side of the Atlantic and you've made a sort of a big show of emigrating and then yeah. it's not really going very well. I think yeah. she's quite hard on herself in the essay. Yeah. Um, you know, there is that sort of the undercurrent of despair, but there's an overcurrent of confusion. And I think she feels like she's out of the game. She's the only one who doesn't understand how life works, how work yeah. works, you know. I think though, I mean, from just thinking of myself and, um, Growing up, I mean, I would have felt that, you know, when you become an adult, things become clear and all the confusion of childhood kind of is is taken away. So and then you settle into being an adult and, you know, things are things are set for set up for you and you just get on with things. Whereas then to realize that, um, you know, when you do become a bit older, that actually what is this thing of being an adult? And it's it doesn't become more straightforward. Um, 
and adults are all continue to mess up and be confused and all of that. And Absolutely. You know. I used to get quite alarmed when my mother would say things to me like, sure, I still feel like an 18-year-old in my head. And I'd be looking <laughs> at her like, don't tell me that. <laughs> I want to actually feel like an adult at some point, you know. Yeah. I think it's probably particularly difficult for somebody like Nicole and uh, maybe myself, because I empathize hugely with the personality in this piece, yeah. that she was a good girl at school and I was a good student, a competent yeah. person. Yeah. And then you're thrown into the outside world and you're left flailing. And particularly when you want a bookish life, when that's the undercurrent in your head, yeah. nothing can prepare you for that because little do you know in your little dream world of being a bookish person that... It can be incredible, difficult, incredibly difficult to earn a living, say, as a writer, but also even bookish jobs have their difficulties. We think of them, I think, in a dreamy way, but they're not necessarily that. They're still businesses at the end of the day. And that's never clear to you yeah. when you don't have that experience. Yeah. And and like clarity is what this job is all about, but not about, if you know what I mean, that there was no clear parameters for this job she had secured. She was set up to fail. The boss was incompetent. She was a bully and underminer, you know, and you see this sort of open hearted Irish girl, woman, young woman come into this frigid atmosphere where nothing is clear. She's probably used to people being fairly sound, you know. Yeah. And this boss is far from that. She's not sound at all. She's got this performative life and her absenteeism alone is a huge problem because what are you supposed to do when you don't know what you're supposed to do? And there's literally no one to tell you. She's very mercurial, this woman, um, and incompetent as well. And, you know, Nicole paints it throughout the essay as a failure, that she's failed at this job, she's failed at this move to America. And from, you know, an older perspective, and I, I know I used to be devastated when jobs would come to an end as well when I was young. But we can see, I think, as readers, that this boss is jealous of this young woman, yeah. of her future, of her youth, of her... Her clear abilities that your woman doesn't want to acknowledge. That's my, that's yeah. what I'm reading between the lines here, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, there's a beautiful story by Mary Robeson uh, called Yours. And in it, there's an older husband and a younger wife and the, the wife is dying. Clark is the husband. And he says to his wife, Alison, he wanted to tell her from the greater perspective he had that to own a little talent like his was an awful plaguing thing. That being only a little special meant you expected too much most of the time and liked yourself too little. And that passage, because I teach this story, so I'm quite familiar with it. Yeah. It's sprung into my mind here with regards to this boss. I feel the boss has possibly minimal talent and she yeah. recognizes something in Nicole, a spark of something special, um, a good future that's awaiting her and she resents it. And so she makes life difficult for her. And, you know, I'm a feminist and I don't like saying this, but woman to woman jealousy can be very real at times, you know. Uh, and instead of nurturing Nicole and being there at the start of her bright future, she wanted to quench her, you know. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of talk at the moment and uh, in terms of, you know, access, great, greater access for people into publishing and bringing in, increasing diversity, um, you know, within the publishing industry itself and also, um, you know, for, among writers. But, um, you know, yeah. I suppose one of the challenges is, you know, how how do you get into this world 
um, if you're not from a certain background or if you, you know, and if you don't know your nav- know how to navigate. So I suppose we're trying to put different systems in place now within the industry. Um, how do you see that going yourself or do you have? You know? Yeah, I know this from um, being published in London and New York and having meetings with my editors who were often 30 something women from pretty privileged backgrounds, highly educated, you know, um, with career plans, etc. But like all of them had these mad commutes into New York City or into London City from hours away because they couldn't, simply couldn't afford to live in the city. So they had these incredible work lives that started at 6am and ended at 10pm. And these were the privileged ones. You know what I mean? These were the ones who were destined to work in publishing. So what of the person who does not come from money, does not have an education, does not have an English degree? I think in those places, extremely difficult for them to break in. Maybe a little easier in Ireland where, I don't know. I mean, is it? I don't know. I mean, yeah, we definitely need diversity. Yeah. I mean, I suppose what's, What's going against Ireland uh, just is the, is the small size, and then so there aren't there aren't going to be that many opportunities for people really, you know. So, uh, That's it. But even to gain experience, but then how do you go and live in London to work in? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just yeah. it's impossible practically. But, um, I want to talk a little bit about the essay form because I know you 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 write more essays now, and mm. I suppose I, I guess. I can. I know myself that there's probably more opportunities to get essays published now as well. I mean that that's a big change over the last while. And how do you view that? Um, oh yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, all these new places opening up and publishers being more open to the essay as a form. Laurie Moore talks about her nonfiction as a shadow life to her main concern, fiction, um, and I, it can feel a bit like that, like a release into a different world for you as a writer. Yeah. Um, I mean, you'd be kind of more known, I suppose, having started out as a poet and fiction writer. But um, increasingly, I mean, I see there was an essay I just read actually in Banshee as well um, about your dad. And but, um, you know, so there's there are more opportunities, obviously, for the form. And what what is it that appeals to you moving from fiction into nonfiction? In some ways, it's easier to write because there's less of a research process and a plan, you know, up front, Um, especially when you're writing personal essays and you're coming from within yourself. And you're like I was saying earlier, you're trying to puzzle yourself out. You're poking at yourself to see what what do I really think about this? What is this about? Um, There's a brilliant book by Mary Carr called The Art of Memoir, and she talks about the type of person that should write a memoir, <laughs> yeah. uh, should, you know, should be a doubter, a worrier, a nail biter, an apologizer, a rethinker. And I think, you know, she's describing me to a T <laughs> yeah. that like, I am someone who anytime something floats into my consciousness, I have to analyze it from 10 different directions and try and ask questions of it. Yeah. Maybe that's just you know, a, res- a result of my personality being introverted. I'm also hypersensitive, you know, like I'm sort of so sensitive, it's almost a difficulty, but I try and reframe it in positive ways for myself just so I'll yeah. keep going. Yeah. Um, but that sensitivity also is what makes me a writer and what yeah. what brings me into that zone, you know, five days a week. Yeah. Um, and essays play nicely into that. Yeah. So things that I don't necessarily want to write about immediately in fiction, I can write a nonfiction piece about. So things like 
that essay in Banshee, the most recent one is about crying. It's mm. also about literature. It's about my dad dying, you yeah. know, of COVID and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah. I love the way essays can encompass 10 different things. And invariably I find myself bringing literature into them because yes. it's basically what I'm interested in, you know. Well, that, I mean, I was actually just going to ask about that because within the essays there, you know, you just hop from reference to reference uh, in terms of referencing other authors, what they've said about the subjects that you're talking about. And even in this conversation, you've referenced a few writers already. So, I mean, and so that obviously that brings me to a question of about your reading, which must be, you know, a huge amount of reading that you've done over over the over the course of your your life and your writing life in particular, and how that fuels your writing. I suppose I'd like to ask about um, as well. Yeah, I was listening to Banville lately talking about uh, influence. You know, yeah. it's, which is something I'm very interested in, and and what is the nature of influence? What does it mean? And he was talking about how he doesn't essentially believe in influence, that he feels he believes in fellow singers. So voices he admires in mm. literature, <clears throat> people who are, excuse me, singing from the same hymn sheet or something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> and I feel that for me, it's the same. I adore people whose prose seems to chime with me, that I just... It's not necessarily 100% about story for me. I have to love the sound of the prose. And I can be very fond of simple prose as much as, you know, decorated yeah. prose as such. But I I feel I don't read enough for absolute pleasure. Because I write these historical novels at the moment, I'm all the time reading research. Yeah. Um, and so that's an issue like, so for example, Anne Enright and Emma Donoghue's books from last year are still sitting unread on my shelf because right. I simply have not had time to get to them. Yeah. I plan to take a month off this summer and read just for yeah. pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Nothing to do with anything except yeah. what I want to read. So yeah, reading is huge for me. I'm I'm just always sort of devouring 10 books at a time. So at the moment I'm reading uh, look, it's a woman writer, the Ireland House oh, anthology yes. yeah. about feminists, or not feminists, but women writers from the mid-50s, born in, around the mid-50s, around that time. Um, and it's brilliant, you know, absolutely stunning essays from the likes of Leah Mills and Mary Morrissey, who I'm a huge admirer of, um, Catherine Dunn, people like that. So, yeah. you know, fantastic. Um, I recently read the shadowy third Julia Perry's book about her grandfather Humphrey House and his his affair with Elizabeth Bowen. Right. Absolutely brilliant. You know, one of those really charged narratives, very unputdownable. I loved yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I'm reading Elizabeth Bowen's stories with a reading group. We're just reading the stories at the moment. We'll probably right. move on to the novels, but that's yeah. been brilliant. Yeah. Um, Because I hadn't read them as a big chunk before and there's a lot of them. Yeah. And I just in her. terms of, you mentioned there doing the research for the historical novels and I just finished reading Nora, which I really enjoyed, but I kind of knew a lot of the story because I worked for a few years in the James Joyce Centre yeah. and kind of <laughs> would have listened in on a few guided tours and mm. <laughs> had quite a bit of the information. And at that time there was a nephew of... Um, of Joyce, um, Ken Monaghan, who ran the centre. But um, so a lot of it was familiar to me, but, um, you know, how much reading and there was, a, you know, you had to fit in a lot of facts into this novel. And just tell me about the process of writing Nora, if you could. Yeah, so I, 
the first thing I did probably was reread Maddox's biography of Nora. Yeah. I mean, I moved to Galway, as I said, 25 years ago, and I used to go to the annual celebration at the Nora Barnacle Museum on Bloomsday, and we'd, there'd be a keg and people would do readings and stuff. Yeah. So I was always very aware of Nora. Um, so I read Bad um, Maddox and I read the Elman biography, and then I read the Bowker and I read Stanny's books and mm. Budgeon's account of his friendship with Joyce. I read the letters. I yeah. read as much as I could, yeah. but I also wrote at the same time. Right, yeah. So uh, Hilary Mantel talks about the future being blank for your characters. And so even though I knew the general yeah. arc of the story, I acted as if I didn't. And I drip fed the research to myself and sure. I wrote at the same time, which is something yeah. that I kind of like to do because yeah. it keeps it fresh for me. Yes, yeah. Um, incredibly enjoyable. I have to say I love Joyce even more now than I did before I started, I empathize with him more. I understand him more. I've, I'm, I'm sort of more defensive about him. Yeah. Um, and, and tell me a little bit about that. I mean, um, in terms of what were the things that made you understand him more? Well, I suppose before I would have looked at his um, financial dealings, I would have been a bit harsh maybe about them. But when I, when I understand the difficult journey he had into publishing, you know, publishers promising to publish and letting him down. And this yeah. went on for years and years. And then that it took him seven years to write Ulysses. Like he had a wife and two kids to support. He needed support and yeah. found it with, you know, Mrs. Rockefeller and Sylvia yeah. Beach and Harriet Weaver. But, you know, I understand all the borrowing now and I understand that he was following a pattern set for him in childhood yes. from his father. I mean, I kind of, I knew that anyway, but I, I just feel more from now. I sort of empathise more with his choices, maybe because I am now at 51 looking at my life, my power to earn compared to the power to earn of, say, my sisters or something and thinking, yeah. oh, my God, you know, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. Why didn't I get that permanent pensionable job my mother was so determined for me to get? Um, <laughs> And do you, how do you feel, I want to, I'll come back to that, but do you want to say how you feel about Nora now? Do you feel, um, I mean, maybe you were getting to know her, I suppose, but um, as you wrote, but do you, do you have more respect for her now or less or? Um, oh, totally more. Yeah. I mean, I loved her before I started. I'd read the Maddox biography when I was yeah. a teenager, it came out yeah. in 88 or 89, I think. Yeah. Um, and I'd seen the film with uh, that Susan Lynch, Pat Murphy yeah. made. Yeah, it was yeah. beautiful. Susan Lynch was an astonishing Nora in that. I loved her. Um, no, love Nora more, respect her. I see that she really did carry him along and she was the perfect foil to his kind of nervy, yeah. you know, sort of put upon disposition. She was naturally optimistic and she had lovely bonhomie. She just had a sort of a natural uh, good humour that really yeah. was... Perfect in contrast to him. Yeah. So she was able to buoy him up. She was able to drag him out of the bistros to stop him drinking yeah. so that he would write. You know, she minded him, really yeah. minded him yeah. properly, you know. Yeah, and um, she did. Enabled. I mean, she was so, she did enable him, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because she was so forgiving, even though he annoyed yeah. the hell out of her. Uh, and, uh, you know, she was able to let rip. And certainly you, you present this in the novel, but... Um, but she always is there to forgive him, you know, like even, you know, so she'll, she'll back down very quickly. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Y you know, she'd criticise him, but then if one yeah. of his sisters hopped in, she'd oh, hop yeah. on the sister, you yes, know, and yeah, I, yeah. I think it might be a very Irish marriage type of situation. I, I've yeah. probably seen it at home, you know, yeah. growing up. Yeah. 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 And then just to talk a little bit maybe about um, 
sustaining yourself as a writer and you know you mentioned there about not having gone down the pensionable job route and it perhaps it's too late for that now Nula but yes I uh, think it is for, for, <laughs> for both of us yeah. but, but um so but you know like how do how do you, how do you look back on yourself now as the younger writer and then how do you look into the future I mean like do you understand yourself better looking back? And I do. I do think I was quite naive. And um, I didn't understand that there are different ways to be published in a sense, you know, and that I, I find the younger writers I encounter now, or I should say new writers, because a lot yeah. of them aren't young. Um, they probably, their first port of call is an MA in literature or an MPhil yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And they learn things there that I had to learn as I went along. Um I think I had bad luck with agents early on. And then I met the agent that I have, Gronya Fox, and she's wonderful and we're a good match, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think there is a lot about luck, but there's also about perseverance. Yeah. I write because I love it. Yeah. I'd write anyway, even if I wasn't being published, because it's my joy and my sanity. And I just yeah. do it like every day because it's better for me to do it. Yeah. Um, but I do think the newer writers seem a bit more savvy than I was and they seem to have plans that I would have known nothing about, yeah. you know, in terms of how they want to be published and what's a good way to be published. But I do think there's a an awful emphasis on debut writers in the publishing industry and I yeah. think it's to the detriment of perhaps all of their second books or a sustained career beyond that. I'm kind of glad that... I didn't have a hit book at the start because I don't know if I'd have handled it very well. Yeah. I, I'd feel very ready for a hit book now. <laughs> but, um, you know, them's the breaks, like, you know. Yeah. I, I kind of like the way I've done it. I feel like I've learned a lot. I've yeah. learned slowly, but that's maybe who I am. Yeah. And I've enjoyed my journey. And it's definitely easier now with the Irish Writers' Centre. Has I've seen enormous changes in that across the years. Uh, for the better, more diversity of courses, etc. Um, and then with Words Ireland, being advocates for writers and creating mm -hmm. opportunities for writers, I feel much better looked after now than I did, say, when I started out, whenever that was, uh, right, yeah. 20 odd years ago, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I feel like Words Ireland has been such a boon to us because I can contact them when I have queries about anything. Yeah. And then I also have a good agent who I can talk to. So, yeah, I'm at a, a really good point now that I'm enjoying. I feel quite, um, I don't think you ever feel like anything is guaranteed in writing because it sure. isn't. No. Um, <clears throat> I never get complacent in that sense. Like generally, uh, every one of my books has been rejected by the publishers I'm with and I've had to find new publishers my agent has. Um, yeah because I don't quite fit into some molds that are out there. Like I'm not quite writing historical, I'm not writing historical romance. I'm writing literary historical. And so I'm sort of a bit niche sometimes for publishers to understand. So a few publishers that I've been with have rejected Nora, say, for it being yeah. too literary. Um, you know, so I, I feel like I'm always starting over. Yeah. And that can be quite stressful, you know, the, the whole round of rejections again. And so that yeah. never ends. Yeah. Or it hasn't for me anyway. Yeah. And so what, what are the kind of next projects that you're, I mean, apart from taking the month off, which sounds like a good thing to do, but uh, <laughs> what are the projects yeah. that you will be working <laughs> on through the rest of the year? So last year, um, 
I had planned not to write a novel. I turned 50 and I had planned to take loads of holidays. And obviously that didn't pan out because of the pandemic. Um, So I got the Arts Council's COVID bursary. It was three grand and you were to do something that could be available digitally. So I started very ambitiously writing this uh, novella about the Irish pirate and Bonnie. And of course, me being me, it blossomed into this much larger thing. And so instead for the COVID project, I decided I would write historical flash fiction and produce a chapbook. And I did that. And it was incredibly enjoyable. I had artistic control over all aspects of the book. Um, And I was just publishing an e-book and then Ireland House offered to do a hard copy, which was a a bonus. It was a lovely thing. So that came out. And then the day I was to launch it, my dad died and I just hadn't the heart, soul or mind to be doing anything. Yeah. But uh, I continued on writing my and Bonnie. And so that has turned into the novel that I am writing and it's my next project and I'm loving it. It's so exciting and fun. Yeah. And there's very little of a paper trail for Anne. Yeah. She lived in, you know, 18th century Ireland and the Caribbean and ca- the Carolinas in America. So that's where my research is. So I've been in my head off in the Caribbean, which has been kind of fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so that's kept yeah. me sane and going yeah. along. And then I'm I'm writing essays every so often. I write flash fiction too yeah. when they occur to me. Yeah. Short stories that? is the one thing that's missing from my life at the moment in the sense of writing. Um, I've started a few and abandoned them. I'm reading short stories with a, a group of story writing friends. Yeah. Every fortnight we meet online and discuss other people's short stories. And I, I keep hoping that'll kind of get me back in the mode. Yeah. Um, I miss, I miss the short fiction world in that sense. So I'm hoping to get back there because, you know, flash fiction is different and, you know, I just, I just fancy writing a, a short story that pleases me in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's if time though, isn't it? Like I, when you're in the world of a novel, it just takes over your life and there's just no room for anything else. Yeah. Not much anyway. Yeah. And are you still editing Splunk or is that ongoing? Yep. Our latest issue came out on the 1st of May. Um, That's incredibly enjoyable. I work with a team of people and they're all great, you know. Yeah. We have a fabulous visual editor. We have a person who edits the interviews and commissions them. And it's a labor of love, but it's a a pretty joyful thing, you know. So we're all thoroughly enjoying that. Yeah. And can we just maybe finish up by talking a little bit because I get a sense from just, I think this has been true for you always, but in terms of a, a writing community and, um, you know, how you went about making that and how it kind of helps you keep going as well. Yeah, I um, about 13 years ago, I realised I didn't really have a writing community where I live. Yeah. I live in East Galway and it's not a town that has a museum or an art gallery or anything. Um. So there's sort of a, a lack of maybe cultural things to do. I'm in a group here called Group 8. We're an artist collective and we put on an annual exhibition, but I needed my writers. So I asked 14 other writers who I, whose work I enjoyed from all over the place, from Dublin, Galway, uh, loud, mm. if they'd like to come to my home and form a group once a month. And so they did, and we're called the Peers. And we've been meeting for the last 13 years. Wow. The meetings have gone online now and I find I'm not, I I find them, I find that kind of talking about writing on a Zoom with so many faces difficult. So I've stepped back from that, but I'll meet again when we're in person. Okay, Um, that's interesting. I can go to events and things online and discuss a story, but I find discussing the work harder for some reason. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. 
it's just it doesn't beg for natural conversation, does it? Zoom? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I had a hard time in Galway years ago and moved out of the city. Um, Galway can be a bit tricky when it comes to who dominates the scene, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I just I moved out of the city and didn't really do a lot of literary stuff in it. Yeah, but there yeah, are yeah. good initiatives there. Um, yeah. Aoife Casby has a well did pre-pandemic a series of um, yes, discussions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're very good. And there's a few other things that have cropped up. Um, so I would tend to look to Dublin and to Cork and to different places for yeah. my for my literary people or whatever. Yeah. Even you know, I, most of my friends live abroad. To be honest, in England yeah, and America. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, that is the one thing that's brilliant about social media that I can stay in touch with all these writer friends. And now with festivals going online and that I can stay in touch with what's I can go to more stuff than I ever went to because you know geography and money and all yeah, of that yeah. would prevent you in the past so that's that's all been really good and I hope that the festivals will continue a live you know an online stream for other yeah. people mm. yeah yeah and we've certainly found that in a similar way in terms of doing our summer school and and different things or yeah. events and launches that you know it does open it up to people in a way that um, is great and you'd I'd like to see continue as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, Nula, I think that we'll say, <laughs> we'll say that's enough for today. Uh, thank you very much. Thank thanks, you. Thanks for the reading and the really engaging discussion. Um, thanks to everybody for listening and a big thanks to the Arts Council whose support makes this podcast and everything else we do here at The Sting and Fly possible. If you like the podcast, do tell your friends about it or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. Keep safe and talk to you soon.